Lord, we come to you this morning knowing that you know and understand all things. You know the struggles that are in our hearts. You understand the ways in which we respond and, Lord, how we react to struggle and trial and difficulty. And yet, Lord, you love us with a love that is so strong that we cannot even imagine its extent. Lord, we don't deserve the ongoing grace and extended mercy that you give us and the kindness, Lord, that you show us. And yet, Lord, you strengthen us along the way. And Lord, we ask that this morning that as we wrestle through this incredibly powerful text, that you would minister to us in a way that maybe we aren't prepared for you to minister. That you would humble us before your very word, before the, the heart that you have revealed in this text, Lord, so that we can see you with a, a magnificent, awesome splendor that we may not have comprehended before. And Lord, we ask that you would teach us, Lord, what we don't know, that you would make us what we are not, and Lord, that you would uh, allow us to be conformed to the image of your Son through our time together. Lord, now uh, allow me as your messenger simply to be your mouthpiece, and Lord, your word would, would go forward uh, with, with freshness and boldness, and Lord, a, a, a medicine to the soul, we ask in your precious name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. James Robertson's biography of Stonewall Jackson contains a beautiful and moving account of the time when at 30 years of age, Jackson lost his wife, Ellie, and baby son. On a Sunday afternoon, October 22nd, 1854, Ellie went into labor. The child was stillborn. About an hour later, she began to hemorrhage and she died very quickly. And Jackson is writing uh, a letter to his sister, Laura, who is an unbeliever, and hear what he now says in this letter. I have been called to pass through the deep waters of affliction, but all has been satisfied. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It is his will that my dear wife and child should no longer abide with me, and as it is his holy will, I am perfectly reconciled to the sad bereavement, though I deeply mourn my loss. My dearest Ellie breathed her last on Sunday evening, the same day on which the child was born dead. Oh, the consolations of religion. And he's talking there about his Christianity. I can willingly submit to anything as God strengthens me. Oh, my sister, would that you could have him for your God. Though all nature to me is eclipsed, yet I have joy in knowing that God withholds no good things from them that love and keep his commandments. And he will overrule this sad, sad bereavement for good. A few weeks later, he writes again, she has now gone on a glorious visit through a gloomy portal. 
I look forward with delight to the day when I shall join her. Religion is all that I desire it to be. I am reconciled to my loss and have joy in hope of a future reunion when the wicked cease from trembling and the weary are at rest. Would you respond to such tragedy in the same way that Stonewall Jackson responded to the death of his wife and son? Could you respond in that way? I think that's a penetrating question for us. We would like to, I think, but would we? The great theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards had a daughter by the name of Esther whose husband, Aaron Burr, died suddenly at the age of 42, two days before he was going to be the first ever president of what was then called the College of New Jersey. It's now called Princeton University. And here is a letter Esther wrote to a friend in, re in a reply to her letter of sympathy to her. Here's what she says. Your most kind letter of condolence gave me inexpressible delight and at the same time set open afresh all the avenues of grief and again probe the deep wound death has given me. My loss, shall I attempt to say how great my loss is? God only can know and to him alone would I carry my complaints. Had not God supported me by these two considerations. First, by showing the right he has to his own creatures to dispose of them when and in what manner he pleases. And secondly, by enabling me to someday follow my husband beyond the grave into the eternal world and there to view him in unspeakable glory and happiness. I should not, long before this, have been sunk among the dead and been covered with the clouds of the valley. God has wise ends in all that he does. This thing did not come upon me by chance, and I rejoice that I am in the hands of such a God. Now, what do you think of God in times of sorrow, in times of sickness, and in times of suffering? Have you ever thought of God the way that these two, Jackson and Esther Burr, wrote of him? Do you believe that God withholds no good things from them that love and keep his commandments? Do you believe that he will rule, uh, he will overrule this sad, sad bereavement for good? Do you believe that he has the right to his own creatures to dispose of them when and in what manner he pleases? Do you believe that God has wise ends in all that he does. Now friends, in this book of Job, we find a story of both the kindness and the severity of God, the sweetness and bitterness of his providence in the life of his servant Job. We come to a book that will teach us that God's love for us is bigger and broader than sentimentality or any kind of sympathy. 
and that his will for our lives is vaster and grander than our own personal happiness or success. We come to a book that will renew our vows, so to speak, reminding us that we are to be faithful to God for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, and that we are to love God, to cherish him as he does us, whether he gives or whether he takes away. The story of Job begins with joy and happiness and a faithful, godly man who does, that does loving things for his family. But the calmness we see in verses 1 through 5 will turn into a tempest for the next two chapters, which is what we just read. And what is striking in the story is that it was God who would put Job to the test. Satan comes to check in with the Lord. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? Did you catch that? It is God that is even initiating the conversation, that is initiating the attention on Job. And in three different ways, Job will face the depth of trial and suffering so immense, it is even hard for us to imagine what we're reading. Such a blameless and upright God-fearing man, we would say, doesn't deserve this kind of suffering. Yet we need to pay close attention to what the text tells us about Job and his response to the unimaginable suffering he's experiencing. And so there's a sense in which we come to this text and we're, we're looking for a godly response to human suffering. In our text, Job will endure three tests while at the same time anchored to what he believes about God and his ways. Three trials that Job faced, a number of anchors that he embraced, and a sovereign God that he worshipped. So this morning, I would like for us to consider this passage in this light, enduring suffering while anchored to a sovereign God. God. Now, friends, if you are a child of God, you will do this at one point in time in your life, and more likely, many times in your life. Suffering will be there. You will be there. But there are theological truths that we embrace, that we live and breathe, that help us during those times. Now what we need to realize as we begin here today, as we work through these times of suffering, is that there are two arenas revealed for us in this text. And we have the privilege of listening to both, don't we? There's the arena of heaven, where we see the Lord and Satan interacting. And then there's the arena of the earth, where Job faces and endures his suffering. We are aware of both. Job is only aware of one. Now he can imagine there's another arena, but he has no idea what's going on in that arena. What he is experiencing is there on earth. It's what he can see, it's what he can feel, it's what he can hear. And let us keep that as part of our framework of understanding as we enter into this text. And I would like to begin this morning by looking first of all at the God that we worship in the midst of our suffering, the God that we 
worship. It's often that in looking at suffering, we spend so much time looking at the suffering that we neglect to see the God who is there in the midst of that suffering. And so we want to learn from our text today about the nature of God, a little bit uh, that we can see how God is on display for us, in particular in our text today. You'll probably notice as the text was read or now as you're reflecting over it, that we actually have two parallel kind of accounts going on. You have, uh, you have these two sections, chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, both begin in the heavenly realm where God is in the throne room and he calls the sons of God, presumably the angelic beings, to report and to give account. And then in each account, God specifically addresses Satan. And then uh, each, in each account, God... Um, Job is presented by God as this blameless, upright, fearing God and, and one who turns away from evil men as this kind of this wonderful picture of godliness. And Satan then critically assesses Job's fake faithfulness in both accounts to which God then gives Satan limited freedom to turn his hand against Job. Then in each account, Satan goes out and causes Job's suffering. And in each case, we see Job respond to the suffering he is experiencing. So there's these two parallel accounts with, with different emphases, but there's similar things that are going on. But there's something that we might not notice unless we're willing to take a little closer look. Have you guys ever you know, been someplace, maybe in school, or maybe you, you know, at, the, at the eye doctor, and they give you this, this picture and it has all sorts of dots on it. They're trying to figure out whether you're colorblind or not. You guys have been there, right? And you, sometimes you look at that, you know, I'm not colorblind, but I'm still trying to figure out what's going on here, right? And it's like, you know, I don't want to get this wrong, right? I mean, you're, you're struggling because you want to get it right. But, but you'll see the numbers in the dots that are there, right? But you have to, you have to look a little bit to see it. Or maybe you've, maybe you've looked at this picture before, and you have to ask yourself the question, is this, is this a duck or is it a rabbit? And it depends on how you're looking at it, right? And it's like, if I say duck, you're like, oh, yeah, it's a duck. Or if I say rabbit, you're like, oh, yeah, it's a rabbit. Now, I, I share this with you not because uh, I, I want to kind of play games with you. I want to share this with you to say sometimes we come to texts of Scripture, and we're already anticipating a rabbit, and so what we see is a rabbit. Well, what we need to do is allow the text to, to do some work so that we can actually see what is there. I'm not trying to be mystical here. I'm simply saying oftentimes we come with a, a framework of understanding where we're already seeing a text in a certain light. And so we want to be careful because we need to take a fresh look to see the things that God wants us to see that maybe we haven't been seeing so with that being the case, I would like for us to notice, first of all, that, that, that the God who initiates this terrible suffering is also the, the God of covenant love. Did you notice as we were reading this, the divine name used by the narrator and, and sometimes used by the characters, but the divine name the narrator uses is, is there, the Lord, the Lord, in all caps, now, you've got to stop and you've got to think, why would the narrator use that? Because the characters typically, not always, but because Job brings up the Lord also, but there's a sense in which the narrator is wanting us to see something here. 
He doesn't call him God. He calls him the Lord. This is the English language's way of identifying the fact that this is the word Yahweh. This is the word or the, where we get the expression, I am. This is speaking about the God who is the covenant-keeping, covenant-loving God. Okay. And so what we have here then is that the narrator, in a sense, reminding us in the midst of all this suffering that he is a covenant-loving God. He's not just a, 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 a God or a ruler or a, a leader. He is one who is in covenant with those who are his. So it is often the case when the clouds of suffering come, we're often obscured in our understanding of who God really is, and it's hard for us when we're hurting to remember that our God who sits on the throne is a God of covenant love, that our suffering, that our struggle, that the trial that we're facing doesn't change his commitment to us. God has not changed his orientation to you. You are still, even though you're suffering, the object of his affection. You are still the one that he is committed to because he has covenanted with you. That's, that's what the, the narrator is trying to help us see here. Not only is our God a covenant-loving God, I think we also see from this text that our God is a sovereign and powerful God. Right, the sons of God are, are not gate-crashing God's party. It's not happening like that. Notice in the text, they are being summoned by God to appear before him. These are the creatures of his creation that he is saying, you come and report to me. And one of them is Satan. And the word Satan, title, means the accuser, the one who opposes, or the one who is our adversary. And he is accusing both God and Job. First, he says, is it only because of the hedge you've put around him? Remove his blessing and he will curse you to your face. Then he says, in the second one, the second, uh, I'm going to say accounting, the second trial, the only reason Job has any faith is because you save him from suffering physically. So he's accusing God and he's accusing Job. And we see here that God permits the chain of Satan to be loosened just a little bit more, but God is in complete control of all that is happening. You see that. Yes, Satan is doing these things. Satan ultimately brings the destruction, but it is God who is in control, and he has Satan on this chain. And so this, this sense of somehow there's an equality with God and Satan, these two are fighting out, is so far from what this text is saying. This text is saying that our God is perfect, sovereign, and powerful. Now, friends, having a right view of God is critical for us when facing suffering, trials, and hardships. I said it last week, you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it again because I want to make sure we understand this. If you wait until you're experiencing suffering to start to develop an awareness of who God is or why we suffer, in other words, a theology of suffering, you are likely to have a distorted view of God because you will begin to shape God 
in light of your suffering rather than shape God, not shape God, but see God before that suffering and bring that God into your suffering to give you clarity. And so we need to develop this theology. So our text sets out by presenting God as a covenant-loving God who is perfect, sovereign, and all-powerful. And friends, our Christian walk is one of growing in our understanding and awareness of who God is. So as you read God's word, as you study it, as you teach it, as you interact at home group or Bible studies, determine to grow in your knowledge of him. We want to see him. We want to see him as he truly is. So friends, we've, we've looked at the God we worship. Now we need to consider the suffering we often face, the suffering we often face. And we'll spend a little bit of time here. We're going to see three tests that Job has to go through, three trials that he faces, three pains uh, that he must endure. So God the Lord, the creator of the universe, is seated in heaven, and the sons of God come to present themselves. They're checking in with God, and one who checks in then is Satan. The Lord asks him, uh, from where... Have you come, Satan? And Satan responds in what to me seems to be a little of an evasive answer. From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. If you remember last week we said that he's, he's homeless, right? He, he doesn't have a, a place. This is where he's been, he's, he's been sent because he rebelled in heaven. And he's basically he's saying, you know, I've just been hanging around here and there in the earth and, uh, you know, to which you've commanded me to be in. I've just been doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And the Lord initiates and invites Satan to look at a particular man by the name of Job. There is none like him on the earth. He's a man of true integrity, both inside and out. He fears God. He hates evil, is what God is saying. But Satan isn't buying what the Lord is selling. He has considered Job and his piety and he thinks that it's fake, it's cheap, it's spoiled, it's shallow. He thinks that Job's faith is simply a refined form of selfishness. Here's how he puts it. Look at verse 9. Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands or you've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Now, friends, just ask yourself the question, why is it that you worship God? Do you see God as the means by which you can get Physical blessing, is that why you want to have a pursuit of him? Is he the means to satisfying yourself with, with stuff? Is that how you view him? Job is going to remind us, this story is going to remind us, you may have the stuff, but God is just as right to remove the stuff. Now, does Job fear God for no reason? That is the devil's question. He is questioning the depth, the sincerity, the resilience of Job's faith. If you take away all the blessings, he reasons, Job's superficial faith will be clearly seen by all. He will be exposed as the fake that he really is. If you take away his children, if you take away his wealth, 
Job will certainly curse you to your face. You can hear the sentiment of Satan, right? You don't talk to people like that if you're on good terms with them. He will curse you to your face. It's an ironic statement, isn't it? Because that's exactly what Satan had done to get thrown out of heaven. He cursed God to his face when he led a failed rebellion against God. So Satan doubts Job's faith. But hear this. God has confidence in his servant, or at least confidence in the gift of faith that his servant has. This, this, this gift of preserving or persevering faith. One commentator says this, it is perhaps too far a stretch to say that God wants to show off Job's faith in order to glorify his own gift. But it's only a small stretch, for the scene is reminiscent of Jesus' words of confidence to Simon Peter. You remember this in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. My friends, God is confident that what he has done in his children is real. (laughs) And he expects, not because he's out there like a parent saying, well, I expect your child to be like, you know, you're a Phillips child. You need to act like a Phillips. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking here about the fact when God brings radical change, that radical change bears fruit. And if this is radical change in Job, it's going to bear fruit in persevering faith. Satan is real, no doubt. His power is real, but God is in control, and God has confidence. In fact, God has enough confidence to loosen Satan's chain. And then he says, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord. In other words, God is saying to Satan, go ahead, take away all the material blessings and let's see what happens to Job. All of this, of course, is carried out in verses 13 through 19. It all happens in one day. And Job receives four messengers, bad news that will shock his system to the core. He hears about the uh, Sabians who took the oxen and donkey and and killed off the servants. He, he hears about the lightning storm that fell from the sky and burned up all his sheep along with the servants who were attending them. He, he hears about uh, the Chaldeans who raided the camels and struck the servants with the sword. And then he hears about this gale force wind that comes while his children are celebrating together, just like we saw in the, verse, the first few verses there. And, and all of them die, and the servants that are there also. And one day, through both human savagery and natural disasters, Satan destroyed all of Job's perfect possessions, including his ten beloved children. Now, we know that this is just the first of three tests that Job would have to endure, but notice Job's reflex response to his deep suffering. This should shock us. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. 
And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, we must be careful here because we know the story so well, and we seek to, to, to soften the depth of the grief that he's facing. But hear this, it hurt Job to lose all his possessions. I mean, when we, when we have the beginning of the book emphasizing so much how much Job had and how much influence he had in the community and in the, the city nearby, it hurt Job to lose all of his children. That should be a no-brainer for us. can imagine what he's going through. But remember how the narrator described Job's doting love and spiritual care for his family. So now... Job would not only have the loss of possessions, but he would be burying all 10 of his children. Can you imagine having to do that? And unfortunately, we're shocked to hear how the loss of possessions can turn a normal, stable, hardworking man or woman into a ball of depression. It causes families to, 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 to crumble into total ruin or marriages to fail when a man loses everything he has worked for. Typically, despair sets in. And what becomes of despair is hard to predict. For many, it can be some kind of depression. For, for some, it can be that they turn to drugs and alcohol or, or living in sin. They just kind of give up. And for others, it can be the worst implosion imaginable, such as Irvin... Lupo, who in 2009 was fired from his job at Kaiser Permanente, went home, killed his wife and five children before turning the gun on himself. These things can happen, friends. Despair. At face value, Job's response to his tragic loss might seem rather stoic, as if he's not too shaken up by it. He's going through these motions, but it's not an accurate picture. Look at what he does. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. Now, we might just think that those are, are physical things and ceremonial things, but there's far more going on here. These are outward expressions of his inward sorrow. It is as if his heart had been torn in two and his head severed from his body. This was unimaginable loss. Even in the face of this great hardship, Job's immediate response is not to take it out on himself or take it out on others or even take it out on God, but rather in sorrow and humility and faith, he prostrates himself upon the earth and worships his sovereign God. This is there's nothing quite like this in Scripture, in the world, except what we see the Lord Jesus Christ doing in the Garden of Gethsemane, anticipating the suffering that he would experience, but doing it willingly. And the narrator wanting to make sure we understand what is true reminds us, look at verse 22, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Satan says he'll curse you to your face. That is not what, Satan, what, what Job does. He maintains his integrity. He doesn't turn on God. 
So Job's first trial was the pain of loss, the loss of his possessions, the loss of his children. We now turn to consider Job's next test, the pain of what I'm calling here pain of affliction, the pain of affliction. Once again, the Lord summons Satan into his presence and boasts about the faith of his servant Job, saying, have you paid attention to my faithful servant Job? (laughs) I love this. He still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Satan, you thought that you would cause him to curse me, but guess what? That hasn't happened. So although Job was successful, when God invites Satan to consider Job, Satan's response affirms that he's still unconvinced. Listen to what he says. Before uh, Satan had said, the only reason Job is serving you is because you bless him, so take away what he has, and he'll curse you. Now, he says, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Satan's saying, if you give me freedom with his body to turn it black and blue and red, he will curse you. Now, friends, on a human level, we're shocked at what we read next. That God would release the chain a little bit more to give freedom to Satan to afflict Job's body, but not end Job's life. Now, friends, if we're honest, and maybe I'm just speaking as a guy, there is little out there that makes us more self-focused than some kind of bodily affliction. We can lose a lot of things, but throw sickness on us, throw some physical ailment on us, and, and we whimper. I mean, you know, the flu went through this season. Did any of you just at one point in time in the depth of your flu say, God, just take me home? You know what I'm talking about. There's something about sickness where we just say, enough, right? I, I just can't do this anymore. This, this week, um, my wife and I were watching a documentary on TV about the USS Indianapolis, which sank during the Second World War. And the crew had to abandon ship, and there was oil in the water, and they floated around, and they floated around for four days because no one knew that the ship had gone down, so no rescuers were out there looking for them. It just happened after four days that there was a, a, a plane that was just basically um, just scouting the area and spotted some oil in the water. didn't even see people, but when he came down to check out the oil, he saw men waving their hands. And after being rescued, one of the survivors spoke about the hardship of the ordeal. He said the easiest thing for any of the surviving men to do was to give up, to let go of the life raft or the life vest, to drift away from the rest of the crew and just slip away down into the sea. That was the easy thing to do. He added, if you wanted to live, you had to work. You had to fight your thoughts and your body, and all you could think about was hope, hope that someone would come and rescue you. 
And friends, it's one thing to lose your possessions. It's another devastating thing to lose your children. But it is a consuming thing to suffer hard in your physical body. But just read the horrendous picture of Job's nightmare. Verse 7. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. I cannot comprehend this. The closest thing that I can think of in looking at this was one time when I got poison ivy from head to toe. It was horrible. That doesn't compare to what Job is going through. Satan's plan was ingenious. He shot his silver bullet into Job, but it didn't kill Job's faith. He sat in the ashes and was suffering from head to toe. He was unmoved in his faith. He wouldn't curse God. He would not sin with his lips. That's the second test, the pain of affliction. Now notice the third test. The third test is a little bit different. This is not one where we have this arena going on in heaven. This is simply the fruit of the first two tests and some things that happen as a result of that. And it's a response then to these things. These things. And, and the first part of this then, I call it the, pace, the pain of ostracism here because it has to do with his wife and then ultimately his friends. Now, although the waves of affliction are hitting Job, Mrs. Job is going through sorrow and grief herself. Let's not forget that. Right? The comfort of her possessions and lifestyle has come to a crushing halt. And that would be true for, for any ladies who are here. You have this home, you have these servants, you have all this land, you have the comfort, you have the security. It's all taken from you. Your ten children are now all dead. And your husband is suffering some kind of unusual, excruciating pain and there's no apparent reason why. She is in her own grief and sorrow. She's attempting to make sense of her own world. But unlike Job, who bows down in worship to God, saying, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. She spews out her own bitterness. Satan wanted Job to curse God to his face. But it is Job's wife who presses home the idea when she says, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Rather than be the helper that God created her for in marriage, especially when her husband is feeling helpless, a helper who could say something like, Husband, stay strong. God is with you. We can get through this. Or I love you. Rather than say those things, this woman, Job's wife, who holds out this apple of bitterness for Job to bite into. But Job will not bite. He says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. I mean, we're talking about marital difficulties already, aren't we? This is not good language. 
Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? We should not underestimate how tempting such a suggestion from Job's wife was to Job. Because a man feels most helpless when his helpmate helps him not. It might be easier for Job to let go of the life raft, to take off his life vest and to stop treading water and simply to to drift away by, by drinking the same cup of bitterness that his wife was drinking and offering to him. It makes total sense. Why not just get angry with God? Why not give him a few words of bitterness from your heart? Why not tell him that he's a God full of lies or that that he's a a God who really doesn't care or he's a God who's given up on your life? Why not? It would feel good. It would be easy to do. But Job keeps fighting, doesn't he? He's still treading water. He knows that God is good. He knows that God's will includes suffering. The church father, Augustine, called Job's wife the devil's advocate. John Calvin identified her as the tool of Satan. My friends, this is not a, you know, this is not a, a wife thing. This is just she happens to be the character in the story who's responding this way. But the narrator reminds us once again at the end of this encounter of Job's integrity by saying, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And then, we need to put some things in perspective. Job was rich. He had been a well-respected man in his community. His children had been taken away from him. And Satan had only spared a few people. He spared his wife, and she's only a bitter help to Job. He spares the four servants who came back as messengers to tell Job about what had happened. And then we also find that there are these three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, we must see them, first of all, at face value, as true friends, as real friends. We know at the end of the story, God confronts them because of their faulty counsel, but that doesn't mean that they didn't come with a genuine desire to be a help to Job. In fact, we're told that that's exactly why they came. They came to show him sympathy and comfort him. Now, when they arrive, they don't really think that this person in front of them is Job. And when they finally realize it's him, they do what any good friends would do and join Job in expressing grief visibly and sitting down with him in silence. They want to do the best they can, although they can't, but they want to do the best they can to empathize with him and to join him. So they they take on the physical expressions there uh, of, of tearing their robes and sprinkling dust on their head toward heaven. Now, friends, if there's one thing that these friends did that can be said to be good, it's this. They sought to identify with Job's suffering, and then they didn't speak. Sometimes it's better not to say anything than just something that bleh, pours out. 
sometimes just your presence communicates more than you imagine. You ever had this kind of wrestling match? And family's going through sorrow. They've lost a loved one. And you're like, should I go to the funeral? Should I go to the memorial? Should I go? And, you know, what should I do? I don't know what to say. Sometimes just being there and saying nothing communicates so much. But we need to look at verse 13. It says, and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Friends, there is a point when the comfort of silence, solidarity, becomes the awkward moment when friends just don't know what to say. Seven days. Not a word. My friends, that's awkward. At some point, words do become necessary. At some point, we do need to hear words of hope and comfort. But, but what began as a good thing turns into a lost opportunity and, and further torment upon Job's, Job's soul. My wife just wants me to curse God and die. Thank you, honey, for that. My friends just sit here, and I'm glad for that, but they say nothing. Day after day, they say nothing. I'm truly alone. I really don't belong anywhere. You can imagine his thoughts. Pain of loss, the pain of affliction, the pain of wounds of those closest to him. One commentator summed it up well. He says, here is a man who portrays our darkest fears and sometimes mirrors our worst experiences. And friends, as we read this story, as we continue to press on in the story of Job here and the interaction that takes place with him and his friends and here with God, we will find help in facing the trials that we face. So we want to, we want to dig deep into that well. Now, we've seen then, first of all, the God we worship, the suffering we face. But now we want to identify the anchors that we need when we are going through this suffering. These anchors, I'm saying, are convictions of our soul. They are the truths revealed in God's word that fix our hearts on our sovereign God. They are the, the wind that blows so our weather vanes are pointed in the right direction in the midst of the storms of life. Now, Job doesn't reveal every truth that we need, but what he does give us is enough weight to keep us anchored to God in the harbor of a tempest storm. And let's review Job's responses to the suffering he's faced. All right, and hearing about the loss of his possessions and children, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I sh shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then after listening to his wife, spew out her bitterness in calling on Job to curse God and die, Job responds, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? So I have five anchors that I see flow from this text and then there's gonna be a couple that actually come from outside this text too. Number one, Job's conviction that God is sovereign over all. It is the Lord who gives, 
and the Lord who takes away. He is sovereign. He is ruler. We live in a cursed earth with sin-cursed people, and there will always then be suffering, and there will always be evil. And by evil, we don't necessarily mean, you know, some kind of a goblin running around. I'm talking about just bad things happening. That's how Scripture uses that expression. But God is the one who gives and who takes away. And the giving of it and the taking of it away is not necessarily a reflection of the fact that you are in favor or out of favor with God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he is the king. He's the ruler. He has the right to do those things. He's sovereign, and he does whatever he pleases. We're going to stop there because these others flow out of this. Secondly, second anchor is this, the conviction that God is good. It says in this text, blessed be the name of the Lord. After this is happening to him, Job wants to bless God. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's a covenant-keeping God who, in spite of our understanding of the suffering we're experiencing, is a good God. He is for us. Everything he does is for our good. It's for his glory. Satan wants to chip away at your view of God. He wants to distort that beautiful picture of God that the scriptures present. Now, friends, we may not understand how something is good, especially when it doesn't feel good. But hear this, our lack of understanding doesn't change the fact that God is good. You've heard me tell this story before, but when I was in college, I worked for a man by the name of Mr. Galen. He had a tube bending company, which was part of the auto industry. We did brake hoses, things like that. And um, when there wasn't too much work in the shop, he would send me and my coworker and friend, Mike, to his home where he had this big pond in his backyard. And one day he came, he met us at his house in the morning, and he says, all right, see all those rocks, those big rocks in a pile over there on the right-hand side? I want you to line those up on the right-hand side of the pond and just kind of lay them out neatly and kind of make a nice little kind of thing over there to look at. Okay, so we spent the next two days moving these huge rocks and placing them neatly and uniformly on the right side of the pond. The next morning, Mr. Galen comes and he looks and he's like, no, I don't like the rocks over there. Move them over to the left-hand side of the pond. So for the next two, three days, we're moving these big rocks to the left-hand side of the pond, making them all sort of neatly and that kind of stuff. It was hard work, man. These, these weren't just like little rocks. These were like big boulders and wheelbarrows and, you know, and, and on a, next to a pond. So, you know, the water's... Or the, the ground's kind of wet, and it was just, it was hard work. And then two days later, Mr. Galen came to us, and he said, you know what? I think I like the rocks better on the right-hand side. And we're like, really? Come on. You know? And so we went down there, and we moved the rocks, and moved on to the right-hand side, and dutifully, grumpily, achingly moved the rocks. Then we figured it all out. We realized what was going on. He really didn't care about the rocks. 
He just wanted an excuse to pay us. It was hard work. It was painful work. We suffered in the process. But it was good. We may not have understood it at that time. But after the fact, we understood what he was really doing. Okay? God is good. He's a sovereign God. He's over all, and he is good. Third, he has this anchor, this conviction that suffering can be good. Somehow in our shallow American Christian culture, we've come to believe that God is only, only, only the initiator of good and that God cannot, cannot, cannot be the initiator of evil or bad things. But Job doesn't respond to the calamities he's experiencing by saying things like, what is Satan up to in my life? Or why has this great evil come upon me? In fact, nowhere in his reactions and replies do we have any suggestion that Job uh, is, thinks of suffering as something abnormal or immoral or satanic. No, what we read is, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? If we're honest, Job's words are a theological slap in the face, aren't they? They wake us up out of our prosperity gospel slumber to face the reality that God does at times bring suffering to his people. He is the initiator of it, and he is bringing it about. <gasps> to say anything different, we would have to do all sorts of hermeneutical gymnastics in this text, wouldn't we? God initiates good for his people. And God also initiates bad for his people. Now, you're not going to hear that from too many pulpits around this country. And there are lots of evangelical pulpits that wouldn't say that, partly because whether they realize it or not, they're still caught up with some of the dregs of the prosperity gospel. That if I have Jesus, everything's going to be okay. Welcome to reality, friends. If you have Jesus, yes, ultimately your eternity is secure. And secondly, you have perspective because you have the Holy Spirit living in you who breathes his, his counsel through the revealed word of God. What a blessing that is. But it doesn't mean that life is going to be without struggles. Or that that struggle is not there sent from God. What does the book of James say? Count it all what? Anger. Bitterness. No. Count it all joy. And here, hear this. We talked about this at our men's group the other day. This is not just like a, oh, count it all joy when you, when you suffer. No, it's wrestle what you're experiencing into the category of joy. Why? Because you have a sovereign God who was always good, who was accomplishing his purposes in your life. And sometimes it can be good and sometimes it can be evil or bad. That is the means by which he's accomplishing what he sets out to accomplish. And so we're often convinced 
that our Christian lives were supposed to be tiptoeing through the tulips or skipping our way in the land of Oz to the Emerald City. But hear this. Doesn't Jesus say, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily? Doesn't Jesus say that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted? Doesn't the Apostle Paul tell us to share in the sufferings of Christ? Doesn't he also tell us that God sometimes disciplines us as sons? Now, friends, these are three anchors that we need to hold on to. Now, there are two more anchors or convictions that I want to draw your attention to. The first is in this text. The last will be from the lips of Job later in the story. So let's move on here. Number four. The conviction that God holds Satan accountable. If I'm reading the text correctly, then I recognize that God is the initiator of my trial suffering, but he holds Satan accountable for it. That's what's happening here in the story. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. He still holds fast his integrity. God's speaking about Job. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now, I think if we're looking at the story and we're trying to connect and say, all right, you know, we're somehow going to be treated by God like God is treating Job, we're asking the question, God, why are you bringing up my name before it's Satan? <laughs> why, don't you, why don't you pick on someone else? <laughs> you know, there's someone else that you could use as an example here that maybe is, you know, is righteous and all that kind of stuff. I think I, think I would prefer that. All right? But, but God points out Job because he is a godly man. So he initiates. But it is Satan who actually, of his own desire and will, follows through in his accusation, but not just his accusation, in his behavior. And he then, he goes on and scourges Job in these ways. So God initiates by boasting in a servant, Job, but Satan is accountable because it is he who accuses Job and God and subsequently brings about Job's suffering. Now, friends, we see this in other passages throughout God's word. God initiates suffering and judgment, but he uses rulers and kings or people to be the vehicles through which that judgment comes, but those kings are not there like you know, I'll have a bat phone to God, and God says, hey, I know you're a pagan king, but I want you to go after my peeps to teach them a lesson. No, they have no clue what God is doing, but we know that, that God turns the hearts of rulers for his own purposes. But those rulers are setting out to do what they want to do in their own sinfulness. And therefore, they are held accountable for what they do to God's people. And that is true also here of Satan. The Lord may have initiated, but it is Satan who is held accountable for his actions. He is responsible, and he will be judged accordingly. And here's the last one. It's a conviction that there is more than this life. Naked I came into this world, right? 
Naked I will return. We live, we die, and then there's the resurrection. This conviction is not apparent in these first two chapters, but as we hear Job interacting and responding to his friends in particular, when we go to Job chapter 19 and verses 25 and 26, and we hear the words of conviction that Job utters, it should shock us. This is a a high point in the, the topography of the book of Job. If you could put your hands as far as feeling the book of Job in a topographical way, when you get to 19, 25, and 26, you have this, this mountain that rises up out of the text. And here's what it says. Here's Job and what he is saying. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, remember, he's still suffering here. He's still experiencing this excruciating pain. He says, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job believed that in the last day or in that day, there would be a resurrection and there would be a retribution that in his flesh and new body, he would see God. And if we would look to the prospect of heaven and live in light of the resurrection like Job did, then our troubles would be far from tolerable. Now, I don't know how Job had this understanding I don't know where he gets it from. Now, we do understand the patriarchal age that God did speak audibly to Abraham and to Moses and that kind of stuff. So so Job certainly has an awareness. He has a, a good theology that's being fleshed out here. We tend to see our suffering through the lens of the here and now and not the there and then. But friends, it is the there and then that should change our perspective What does scripture say? Life is but a vapor. What happens here might seem overwhelming. But Paul says this light and present sorrow or something like that compared to what we have in store for us in eternity. It's a perspective thing. If you've been the victim of injustice, if you have suffered great trial, if you are going through deep sickness, pain upon pain, if you're someone who's, who's received the abuse of others and, and there's certainly no, no reason for you to deserve it, hear this, you have a living redeemer and he will stand upon the earth. There's going to be a resurrection. And that Lord, Jesus Christ, will one day stand on this earth when this earth is now the physical present kingdom. And he will rule. And there will be resolve. And your suffering and your struggle will all come into perspective. Now, you're not going to be omniscient. (laughs) That's only something that God is. You're not all-knowing. You won't be all-knowing. But you'll have a better grasp on 
heaven's side of what you've had to endure on this earth. Heaven will shape and clarify your earthly struggle and suffering. Friends, these are just some of the anchors that Job and this text reveal to us in order to help us face the struggle that he's called us to. Conviction that God is sovereign over all, that God is good, that suffering can be good, that God holds Satan accountable, and that there is life after death through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May those anchors be convictions that you study, that you live, that you breathe, that you talk about, that you ultimately believe. And may they hold you securely to God, to Christ, in the midst of your story. Lord, help us today. We have difficulty knowing why. But Lord, more importantly, we need to know who. And our awareness of who you are and how you act and think and behave it's a far better place to rest our struggling hearts when we are going through trial and difficulty and extreme suffering some things Lord we look at and we just can't connect the dots We can't figure out the why of it. And so we rest our hearts in you who is sovereign, who who knows all, is aware of all, who is in control of all, who loves his children. And we say, Lord, do what you desire to do for your glory and teach us to humble ourselves before you following the example of Job but ultimately following the example of Christ who for the joy set before him endured the cross despised the shame sat at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we need you. And Lord, I know that there are hearts right now that are just wrestling with horrible things that they've gone through, trying to make sense of it all. Lord, give them comfort, even in knowing that they may not have the answer. on a micro level but they have you and they have you who can bring the medicine of the gospel that is needed to help them to get up to walk to function to move to face the life that you still have for them 
I still have friends. I still have the body. Lord, may, may Gateway be a place where people can find refuge, true refuge, rooted in your word, fueled by your spirit, focused on worshiping you. We ask this, Lord, in your name.